Let's pray. God, we lift up our eyes this morning um, because the King has come. Jesus, you have come. And that line, Lord, the, the light of the world reaching out for us. Lord, if that doesn't amaze us, Lord, please help us. You are the God whose glory shines brighter than the sun and all the stars in the universe combined. You're the king above all kings. All authority is yours, past, present, future. You reign. Jesus, you are the greatest one of all. So how amazing that you reach out toward us, that you make the first move toward us to fix our brokenness and forgive our sinfulness and make us new. Lord, we ignore you. We marginalize you. We compartmentalize you into the convenient corners of our week. We disobey you, sometimes unknowingly and oftentimes knowing exactly what we're doing. God, we doubt you, we wander from you, we shut our ears to your voice, and you still are reaching out to us. Even this morning as we're gathered here, your Holy Spirit is reaching out to us to call us to Jesus or back to Jesus. You love us, Lord, this morning. You want what's best for us. You have more grace to give toward us than we have sin. You've been reaching out to us from the beginning, from before we were born. So Lord, I pray you'd, uh, you'd amaze us with that afresh this morning uh, in a way that affects the way we see the world and affects our, our uh, desires and what we love and what we hate. Thank you for making us part of the big story that you are telling. Put us in our place this morning, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, I'm Kenny, one of our elders here at Grace, and I wanted to ask you to turn to Genesis 12, where we are continuing in a series that we started in January uh, and ended uh, just before summer, Genesis 1 through 11, the first major chunk of the book of Genesis. And we're starting in chapter 12 today, the life of Abram, soon to be called Abraham and his wife Sarah, um, and and the beginning of God's work of redemption, his plan of redemption. And... uh, uh, I've read a number of things about this, these few verses this week. One, I loved Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament professor for many, many years. In his book on Genesis, of these nine verses, he said, uh, the call of God to Abram, Abraham is the sneak preview for the rest of the Bible. It's the story of God bringing salvation to all tribes and nations through this holy nation, this one nation, administered first by the Mosaic Covenant and then by the Lord Jesus Christ through the New Covenant. But that, that idea that this is the sneak preview got me. I like movies. I like movie trailers. Maybe you go late to the movie, so you skip all those. But I love a good sneak preview. A good sneak preview um, gives you a, a hint of the story that's to come, drops some intriguing details of, of what is going to happen along the way, but doesn't tell you everything and leaves you excited for what comes next. 
at the risk of pushing his metaphor too far, which is usually what you say when you're about to push his metaphor too far, it made me think of Genesis 3.15 from the first part of our series. If this is the sneak preview of, of uh, the rest of the story of the Bible, well, Genesis 3.15 was like that first movie poster you see go up before they've even gone into production. Like all the Marvel movies do that. They haven't even figured out who's going to be in it yet, and they've got the image, and you see it, and you're like, oh, it's coming. Genesis 3.15, if you remember, right after Adam and Eve have been tempted by Satan to doubt God and, and, and entertain the question that maybe God has lied and maybe God is not good and maybe God's holding out and they took the fruit and they ate and God pronounces a curse. The first curse is for Satan. And his word to Satan is this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. In other words, between you and mankind. And between your offspring and hers, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, Satan's first attempt that was successful in tempting man created in God's image to turn from him and destroy them, death enters in because of sin. Satan had a victory and this battle was going to continue on and continue on. But God calls his shot right in the beginning and says, in the end, you may bruise the heel, but the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. That's like the movie poster. And if I was thinking about it that way because then through 1 through 11, we see God doing a lot of things, but we don't see him until chapter 12 begin to do something about that promise. If you think about, we see in Genesis 1 through 11, sin continues to spread and it gets deeper and more um, uh, more violent. We see Cain murdering his brother and God graciously warning him ahead of time and even um, protecting him afterward. And sin gets worse. It gets to the point of a flood where God judges through a flood and says enough. And he spares Noah and his family. And he starts again with one man. But even after that, sin spreads. Noah is still a sinner. His sons are still sinners. And we, got, we left off with the Tower of Babel story. And God had said to Noah, again, I want you to fill the earth. I want you to spread out and increase greatly on the earth. And the people gathered in one spot and they said, no, we want to make a name for ourselves. And we want to erect a monument to our greatness. And they began to build it. And God says, no. And he confuses their language and he forces them to scatter against their will. And that's where we leave off. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. That's where we left off with the question, so what about that promise? When is God going to do something faithful to begin bringing that promise about? Good news, verse 10, we have a genealogy. We're supposed to be encouraged by a genealogy. Goes back to the line, the seed of the woman, Shem, Noah's son, who the blessing was passing on. And 10 generations from Shem, we come to this name Abram, this man. So that's the good news. Is, it's a reminder, God has not forgotten that promise. The line of promise is continuing. And now we're down to Abram in verse 26. And in verse 27, we set the stage um, for how God is be gonna begin this plan of redemption through one man. So let's read the kind of the context, verses 27 through 32. Here we go. You know what? For those of you who are not all that familiar with the, uh, the geography of the ancient Near East, we got three arrows up there, Ur and Haran and Shechem, which are going to come to play here in the story. So just a visual here as we read. 
Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So let's just pause. A few details in there that are going to come up in the story to continue, like why is Abram uh, bringing his nephew along and such. But right there in verse 30 is the huge red flag. So we get the genealogy. Oh, good. God hasn't forgotten. The, prom- the seed of promise is still continuing. But right there flashing in this opening little context is Sarah is barren. She had no child. How is the promise going to come about if it's going to die off with Abram and Sarah? So that's the big cliffhanger. And we get to chapter 12, verse 1, and the Lord speaks here. Let's read. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they'd gathered, and the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who'd appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. That's south. Three questions. First one is with this text here, how do we see God's rescue plan for fallen people begin with Abram? How does it start? Second question, how does it finally come about? We're going to jump out of Genesis. I want to fast forward to that phrase, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed in you. And I want us to see this morning, um, how does it finally come about that through Abraham, all the families of the earth are blessed? But then the last question is very practical. How do we make sure that we get in on it? If the blessing to Abram is for people, uh, families of all the earth, we're part of that all the earth and we can get in on it. And so I don't, I don't want us to leave without understanding how do we get in on these promises made all the way back here. So start with the first question. How did it begin? 
with one man's trusting obedience to a costly call to greater gain. That's worth writing down. We're going to come back to that again. One man's trusting obedience to a costly call for greater gain. That's how I'd sum up these opening nine verses. Notice first that it all begins with God. It's his initiative. Salvation is God's initiative. Like we're saying, he is the one reaching out to us. If he didn't reach out to us, all would be lost. So God's redeeming plan begins with his move, even though right now I want to start thinking about one man's response to, to God's initial move, but trusting obedience to a costly call for greater gain. Here's the call, verse one. The Lord says to Abram, he comes to this man, and he says, I want you to go from, look at all the, the costly things that he asks him to leave behind, verse one. Abram, I want you to go from your country. I want you to go from the place that's familiar to you, where you know where things are, where your, 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 your home is. I want you to leave that place. Not just that, I want you to leave your kindred, your people, your people group, your, tri- your clan, those who speak your language and, and, and observe the same customs and, and who are your, your, your community and your security and your support network. But even more personally, Abram, I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to cut ties with your family even. I want you to leave all that and I want you to entrust your future entirely to me. I have plans for you. I was thinking about even just leaving all those things behind. And it made me think of Anna and Adam Day. This last year, we saw them off to the Philippines. For years, they've been planning and training and preparing and raising funds. And this year, we saw them do a lot of these things. I saw them whittle down all their earthly possessions to the number they could fit in, whatever, 10, 12 shipping uh, packages to send on ahead of them, including uh, Luke's stuffed horse, Yippy, and a cargo ship. And they sent it all off ahead of them. And they sold their used car. And they moved Luke away from their grandparents, his grandparents and aunts and uncles and from their beloved church family. And they left with tears. If you were here for their their commissioning in here, you saw we probably shared some of those tears. That was hard. And that's with Skype and Facebook and instant communication across the globe like that, which is amazing, and financial and prayer support that they know has gone behind them, and the hope of furlough or home assignments down the road. I mean, that's bad enough to leave all that behind. That's costly. But here's Abram in the ancient Near East. I mean, you imagine to travel that distance away, I mean, around the Arabian desert to where God's going to take you. That was goodbye. That's Abram. I want you to leave everything behind. And there's one implicit thing in here, one more thing that God is calling him to leave behind, I think, and that is the gods that he was worshiping and serving. The end of the book of Joshua, Joshua's about to lead Israel into the land and he's recounting and reminding them how they've got to this point and why this land, they could be confident, is theirs. And he reminds them, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. And then I took your father, Abraham, from beyond the river, dot, dot, dot. He's asking Abram to leave everything, including the gods he was worshiping. And the one true God appears to him and says, I want you to entrust everything and put it in my hands. I've got plans for you. 
And what makes the cost even greater is what he calls him to, verse, the end of verse one. I want you to go from all that to the land that I will show you. He says, pack it up, follow me. I'll let you know where we're going when we get there. My son Levi uh, wants to know exactly what we're doing before we do it. We go, for example, to Disneyland with our passes, and as soon as we get in the car, we're driving down the road, and he's saying, which ride are we going to go on first? Are we going to get a fast pass for it? Uh, after that ride, when we're done with that one, are we going to go on this one? Can we go on this one? Are we going to eat anything? Are we going to get a dessert? You know, and we're just like, buddy, buddy, you're just going to have to wait and see. <laughs> he doesn't know. We don't have a plan yet, right? But it's totally unsatisfying. For him, he's just like, ah, I just, I, I want to see, he wants to see it all ahead and know what he can anticipate. And God doesn't give Abram anything. He says, I want you to go to the land that I will show you. He calls him to give up everything for the great unknown, but it's not for nothing. God doesn't just give him nothing. He gives him his word, verse two and three, some huge promises he makes to Abram. Total undeserved blessing he promises Abraham. So here's the other side of it. I want you to leave all this for this. Here's the the greater gain. He's called to give up some costly things for something much better. First three blessings are for Abram. He says, I will make of you a great nation. Imagine how that hit his ears, a man whose wife was barren and who was 75, whose dream maybe was just a few kids. God says, I'm going to make of you a great nation, not just a huge family, but a nation is going to arise starting with you. And he says, and I will bless you in your lifetime, Abram. I'm going to bless you. You are going to prosper, even though you don't deserve it. And even though often we're going to see Abram making foolish decisions and acting in ways that are are, are lacking faith, God is like relentless in his blessing of Abram. And he says, God, I'm going to bless you. He's going to prosper as the Lord leads him. And the third blessing, he says, I will make your name great. Abram's not even sure his name's gonna continue beyond his generation. He's thinking it's just gonna die out with Sarah and himself. And Abram says, no, your name is gonna continue. In fact, I'm gonna make your name great. And he's not gonna just see it in his lifetime. I was thinking about the Melchizedek scene. He goes and rescues his Lot, uh, nephew Lot and he comes back and Melchizedek blesses him. And he says, blessed be Abram by God most high. He recognizes that Abram's name is blessed. But his name goes on to be one of the greatest in Israel's history. All of Israel ends up calling Abraham their father and considering themselves children of Abraham. In the end of verse two, it's not just like a cul-de-sac all ending in Abram. All the blessing isn't just for him. All the blessing for Abraham has more people in view, people in his lifetime and people far into the future beyond him. He says, in you, all the families of the earth. Oh, I skipped a part. Don't let me skip a part. If I ever skip a part, just raise your hand. Verse three, he says, first of all, in his lifetime, I will bless those who bless you, Abram, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So even in his own life, people who align themselves with Abram and work for his good and stand up for him, God will bless. And those who come against Abram, they gotta contend with God if they do so. But it's bigger than just his lifetime. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Paul in Galatians 3 
I said this last week. He said that was the gospel preached to Abram all the way back in Genesis 12. In you, all the families of the earth are gonna be blessed. So here's this huge promise, so much greater gain. And he holds it out and he says, Abram, all you gotta do is just leave everything and entrust yourself to me and go where I lead you and all this will be yours. So how does Abraham respond? Trusting obedience. He believes God's bare word. That's all he has to go on. And he trusts it. And we can tell he trusts it because he acts on it. Three ways he acts on it. And we see his faith. First of all, verse four, he went. That in and of itself is just amazing. So, it's so understated, right? Here's this huge thing, leave everything and I promise all this. So Abram went as the Lord had said or had told him. He went, he packed everything up with all the possessions, and he went out. In Hebrews 11, Abram gets called, put up as an example of faith in a few ways. And the first way it lists is this right here. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. That's the promise. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's faith. He put his trust in the word of the Lord who spoke to him. And his feet followed. He turned from the gods of his fathers and he trusted the Lord. I think sometimes we can imagine that these Bible characters, every day of their life was filled with the supernatural and the voice of God at every turn. And, but we read, and actually, as far as we know, there were a handful of times in Abram's life where God directly spoke or gave a vision. Or, but I imagine that must have, much of the time in between, it wasn't like a yellow brick road all the way to the promised land from Ur. They were walking by faith, heading in a direction, trusting the Lord. So he went, verses four and five, with everything he'd acquired and set out to go to the land of Canaan. At the end of verse five, when they came to the land of Canaan, notice two other things he does when he gets there. He builds altars and he pitches tents. He sets up places of worship to the Lord and he camps. How is that trusting obedience? Well, let's read verse five, the end of it. When they came to the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to him said, this is what you're leaving everything for. Verse six, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Moreh or the oak of teaching, probably a Canaanite shrine, a place of worship of their gods. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. You could imagine Abram getting there and God says, all right, I told you, I'd show you when we got here, here we are. And the land is filled with all these Canaanite nations, all these different nations that have descended from Ham, Noah's son that he cursed and, and said, cursed be Canaan. Canaan will be a servant to his brother Shem of whose line Abram was. And he gets to land and the land is just swarming with hostile nations. This is Canaanite land. And the Lord appears to him right here, verse seven, and speaks and says, Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. To your offspring, not to you right now. So he doesn't break ground on a new house. He builds an altar. I love it. Right there in view of, of this Canaanite shrine, Abram plants a flag, an altar to the Lord. Listen to this. This is another commentator, Sidney Grydana says, Abram, right in the middle of the land of the serpent seed, he sets up a beachhead on earth for the kingdom of God. 
That's a good word, beachhead. That's a point, landing point for invasion, like the beach at Normandy. That's where they hit the beach, and through there, God's going to invade. He says it's sort of like Abram building that first altar here. God says, one day this land is going to be filled with my people who worship me. And Abram believes him, and he builds an altar there, right in the, in the view of this altar to false gods. He believes the Lord. And he doesn't build just one altar. Look at verse 8. From there he moves to the hill country on the east of Bethel. So he goes south through the land. And he pitches his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there, what does he do? He built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. And then he moves on, verse 9. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev, the southern boundary of the land. So he comes in through the north and he comes in and altar, moves down south, altar. And then in verse uh, chapter 13, which we'll get to in future weeks, when he gets down to the, the sort of the southern boundaries of what this promised land is, he builds another altar. He says, this land is the Lord's, even if I don't see it in my day. I love that. It's an image of contentment that's grounded in faith, isn't it? That I'm content, Abram's thinking, to be part of this plan of blessing all the families of the earth, even if I don't see it all in my day. Hebrews ends up saying that about him as well. That he was content um, to, to, to play his part, even though he wouldn't see all the fulfillment of all those parts. So he builds altars, believing there is going to come a day when this whole land is the Lord's. And the third thing he does also evidences his faith in God's future promise. He pitches tents. Instead of settling, he sojourns through the land. He waits on God. Look back again in Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, Abram went to live in the land of promise. This is the land God promised, but he went to live in it as in a foreign land, living in tents. And not just him, but when his sons come along and his grandsons come along with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, And here's why he was content to live in tents with his kids. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations that will last, in other words, whose designer is God. That's one of the big questions throughout here. At times, Abraham and Sarah forget that this is God's plan. He is laying the foundations. He is the designer. And there's times where they're going to try to take the planning into their own hands. But right here, at least, Abram is faithful to leave the building of this city and the establishment of this land being God's land to God. And he pitches tents and he looks to a city that God is going to design. And he entrusts himself to him and he camps through the land. At the end of chapter 11, it wraps up by saying, Abram and all these others were commended for their faith, even though they didn't receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. Abram recognized he was part of a bigger plan than himself and he was content to play his part. Are we... So this is how it began. Here, more story to come. Hopefully this has been a sneak preview and you're excited for the weeks to come here. But I want us to stop here and I just want to think about this. In you, all the families of the earth can be blessed. How did that finally come about? Well, if you wrote it down, point one, point two is the same. It came about by one man's trusting obedience to a costly call for greater gain. In this case, the one man is Jesus. Abram's immediate hope was that Sarah would bear a son, and he does. But Isaac's not going to rescue fallen people. Jacob's not going to be the rescuer. Joseph's not going to be the rescuer. It's not until Jesus comes that the rescuer is here, God's only begotten son. 
And he answered a costly call. Heavenly Fa- the Heavenly Father says to the Son, this is the plan. And the Son says, I'll do it. Philippians 2 verse 6 says that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He paid a costly price. He stepped down from his place of glory and honor and humbled himself to take on flesh and be one of us, made like his creation in every way. That hymn, And Can It Be, we sing, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite is grace. Just like Abram, he left it all behind and he took on flesh and he was born into enemy territory to rescue his enemies. That's the way John puts it. And John 1 describes Jesus' incarnation, his birth, as this. He, the Son of God, was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world didn't know him. He possessed it all. He made it all and the world didn't even recognize him. And not just the outsiders, but even the people of promise says he came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. He left his throne in heaven at the right hand of God to be born in a manger into enemy territory and to be treated in the end like a criminal and die a shameful death. Why would he subject himself to such a humiliating cost? Well, again, in Hebrews, Hebrews 12 says he did it for the joy set before him. Jesus did this for greater gain that there would be more to be gained by emptying himself than there would to be gained by grasping his rightful place in glory. It would be worth it. He wanted what was on the other side of the cross. The Bible says there's a number of joys that were set before Jesus, just a few, for the joy of pleasing his Father and displaying his glorious grace. Jesus wanted to do that. Jesus wanted people on earth and all the spiritual realm to see how gracious God was. And so he was willing to to pay that cost and come down and suffer and die in our place. He did it for the joy of bruising Satan's head, I think. (laughs) For vindicating God's original purposes and to show as powerful and as proud as Satan is and thinks he is that he's wrong. Hebrews 2 says one of the joys set before Jesus was the joy of bringing many sons to glory. So it's not just this big God wants to show his glory for everyone to see, but part of that is because he wants us to to know it. It's personal. That means God, Jesus did this because he loves us. He loves fallen people. Jesus loves his enemies. He loves us. And we can't misunderstand, he also hates sin, hates it. The last night of our Christianity Explored class was this last Monday, and at my table at least, we had a conversation trying to wrap our head around how could the God of love and the God of grace also hate sin and even hate sinners? Listen to this, Psalm 5. God, you, God, hate all evildoers. Psalm 11, 5 says, God hates the wicked, God is not indifferent about us who were made in his image to reflect his character, failing at that and falling short of that. Our sin is a heart issue, too. 
It's not just a behavior issue. Jesus said what makes us unclean is what comes out of us. The problem's in here. We're not unclean because we, oops, accidentally touched something we shouldn't have or overstepped a bound that we didn't mean to. We're, We're sinners because in our hearts, our hearts are inclined away from God and God's not indifferent about it. He hates sin. Jesus hates sin, but Jesus also loves sinners. And he demonstrated that love. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He paid the ultimate cost for great gain, to gain us. Not that we're so special that he had to have us, but he delights in making enemies children. So what did he do? He trusted the Father and he obeyed. Philippians 2.8 says, being found in human form, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prayed, if there's any other way, Lord, that this could pass without me drinking this cup in the place of sinners, please. And then he contented himself with God's silent, no, there's not. And he set his face to the cross and he endured it obediently went to the cross. In Genesis, Adam and Eve were told, if you turn away from me and you eat from this tree and you take matters in your own hand, in that day you will surely die. Well, Jesus on the cross died, finally died the death that we all deserve. The death that satisfied God's anger at our rebellion in a permanent way so that now you can be blessed. Jesus is cursed so that you can be blessed. with forgiveness and with God's spirit to help, make you, help you walk in a new life and to turn from sin uh, in, in, in a lasting way, present you mature in Christ. So I hope the question now that for us it, it, that you want to, to ask is how do we get in on this? I think a lot of you know how we get in on this. How do we get involved in this blessing for all the families of the earth? Well, you've already written it down. It's trusting obedience to a costly call for greater gain. That's what the gospel is. When Jesus came and began his ministry, the son of Abraham, the promised one, here's how he began it. Here was the core message, Mark 1.14. The time is fulfilled. It's time for all the families of the earth to start getting blessed through Abraham, in other words. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. Repent, that's the first part. That's the call, the costly call. It means turn. Repent means leave behind. Sin in the first place, turn from your sin. Don't just want to avoid consequences for your sin. Don't just want to escape punishment. But from the heart, turn from your sin. And the sinful inclinations want to flee your sin and be free of it, not just forgiven of it. Repent, turn from it, Jesus said. I think this repentance also includes, Paul would have certainly included, um, turning from all our striving and all of our efforts and all of our good works and all the things that we make ourselves think, no, I think I can even this out. I think I'm okay. Paul had a long list of things that he could put in that category. And he said, when he finally came to see the good news of the gospel, he realized all that was rubbish that he had to leave behind for the sake of turning to Christ. Repentance is turning from anything that you would treasure above Christ. That's why that one rich man that Jesus met, he had a lot of good things, 
But Jesus put his finger on the one thing that he wasn't willing to spend. He had a great many things and following Jesus just wasn't worth the cost of walking away from those things. I love this. Right in the midst of all this, studying this this week, I saw Mark Dever tweeted, salvation is the free gift that costs us everything. That doesn't, that's not just nonsense. That sounds like an oxymoron. It's a free gift, but it costs you everything. The reason he says that is the gospel call is to leave everything to gain infinitely more than everything that you would walk away from. No amount of sacrifice on your part will ever make God your debtor. Right after Jesus saw that rich man walk away sad, they're walking away and Peter, being very Peter, was sort of puffed up with his own pride and he says, Jesus, see, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake or the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands. He says, even in this time, if following Christ means you, your family turns its back on you, He's going to provide family for you in the church in an even greater way than you, what you walked away with. If it costs you what you own, you're going to receive, even in this age, he says, with persecutions. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And in the age to come, eternal life, he says. So don't think that this costly call is something great to pat yourself on the back. The cost is always less than the gain that, Je- that the gospel offers to us. Jesus even said, you know what? Let's just throw death even in the category. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, even for my sake in the gospels, will save it. In in Jesus' economy of things, even death because of the cross and the resurrection is gain. So the gospel call is to leave everything, to gain everything. And the way we do that is the same way that Abraham, trusting obedience. We take God at his word and we act accordingly. We repent and believe. That's the positive side of turning from, is turning to. We turn to Christ and we entrust our soul to him as the only one who can forgive our sin and make us new. We receive him and his kingdom. We leave and we follow. And I think that then the Christian life, what obedience and following Jesus looks like from there, in part, looks like pitching tents and building altars. I love that imagery. Pitching tents and building altars. Hebrews 13, one last time back over in Hebrews, picks up on, I think, both these things. It says, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Okay, so therefore, what do we do? Let's go with them outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We're called to live as sojourners and not live with a mindset that I've got to make my best life now, but to say God has already already told me where my best life is and it's not going to be now. It's going to be new heavens and earth forever. And because of that, I can live radically different 
differently today? It's a good question to ask. How do I live in a way that's like pitching tent, like a sojourner that acknowledges this is not my best life now? And the other way we walk by faith is we build altars. We are part of God's church that is reclaiming this world for God's kingdom. And we do it by being the sort of people that just said that, that through him continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, that acknowledge indicates other peop- to other people. That's why we're here, Grace. That's our mission. Jesus gave us a, a, some strong words. He says, I will build my church. And, and, and to give us confidence, he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's an image of us breaking the gates and leading people out of death and destruction and hopelessness to Christ. That's reclaiming enemy territory. So we're about to sing. I want you to bow for one minute and pray. Talk to the Lord about this. What might it look like for you right now in this season of your life to order your life in trusting obedience for this great gain that that God's called us to for the sake of reclaiming this world for Christ given your sphere of influence and the gifts and and abilities and skills that God's given you, people he's put in your life. Talk to the Lord for a minute. Lord, what do you want me to hear this morning? And what do you want me to do with that? I'll close this in prayer. Jesus, thank you that because of your ultimate sacrifice of yourself for us, that we can entrust our little sacrifice to you. God, I pray that you would kill the idol of comfort and security in my heart, in our hearts. I pray you'd kill our doubt and our unbelief that we can have, that it really is greater gain deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. Forgive me for shrinking back from that. Forgive us for that as a church, Lord. We have no idea. Who knows, Lord, how, what, what fruit we, we might have seen if we had not turned to you, asked you for it, been willing to, to walk in places that you've led us. Lord, help us. Help us to be a people who follow you. God, I pray that you'd use us, grace here and your church around the world, to reclaim this world. For Jesus' name. Lord, we want to see that verse come true, the gates of hell broken down by us, your church, by your power, and captives let out. Lord, would you do that here among us in our day? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.